This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to The Minefield, a show where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Willie Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host, uh, and Scott, we, I feel like we have to begin today with about a thousand disclaimers. Should I begin? Or <laughs> yes, should, please, go. Or go. should you? Um, it's a very serious show. That is not why my voice has descended however many notes, uh, however many semitones it has. It's, I'm not sick. I have negative for COVID-19. I have <laughs> tested and everything, and I feel okay. But you know when you get sick, but your voice doesn't catch up to what, the recovery? I haven't explained that well, have I, Scott? You know what I mean, though, right? You're yeah. feeling better than you sound. Yeah, and, and I definitely don't have COVID. There is no biosecurity <laughs> breach that's going on here. But I think it's, do you know what? This might sound silly to, to identify and to, like, to fixate on, but I think it's important because I feel like there'll be people in the audience for whom they'll say, what example are you setting? We're in the context of a pandemic, so on and so forth. And I fully respect that. Um, but I just think it's worth making it clear. Can I just say all the things that we didn't think we would have to say one year ago? <laughs> I know. Isn't it amazing? It is amazing. Um, but anyway, so I will sound like this for a little while, but um, fear not. Um, I will definitely not be putting anyone at risk uh, with my conduct. Um, the other thing we should say is that um, we today's topic, we've, we've spoken off air, Scott, yeah. um, about doing for quite a long time. We sort of realised that it was becoming an inevitable thing to do a show on broadly this area, mm -hmm. but it, things kept evolving so quickly. And in fact, the way that this show works, that it's broadcast multiple times on RN and as a podcast, it may well be that as you listen to this, facts have emerged that didn't exist at the time that mm -hmm. I'm speaking these words and that we are doing this show. So that's all worth bearing in mind. And also we've been grappling, I think, with just the thorny impossibility of doing a show like this well given the topic that we're looking at is so grave and so heavy, and I would venture to suggest has been quite badly done in a lot of ways mm. um, in the public discourse, and it's entirely possible that we do it badly as well, and we're trying very hard not to. Yeah. Um, but I think it's worth setting out that context um, for this show before we begin setting out the context of the issue or the topic that we're going to look at. What do you think? I think that's very nicely put. So let's just say right up front that we, we want to talk about some of the things that have been transpiring in Canberra over about the last three to four weeks. Maybe it goes on a little bit before that. But you could say that the pressure has been steadily building over the last three to four weeks. I think it's it's also worth acknowledging, Waleed. Um, anybody who listens to this show will know what the two of us think about social media. Anybody who listens regularly to the show will will also uh, realize that neither uh, Waleed nor I are uh, consumers. Uh, I mean, you know, sort of incidental consumers of social media, but not regular consumers. I think one of the really interesting things for me about what's been going on, especially in the last week and a half, is that it's almost like you have four different conversations going on all at once. There is a highly prudential conversation taking place among those people who are legally trained, who are legal theorists, and who have some very keen sense, but also the proper degree of of legal prudence surrounding what can and should not be discussed about the role of, I think it's probably not too kind of egregious to say the role of emotion uh, in the way that we think about and apportion and moderate our expectations of what can be delivered in the name of justice. So there's that conversation. It's been remarkable to me, Willie, I don't know if you've been struck by the same thing, how few lawyers or legally trained persons or law professors have been prepared to weigh in publicly, uh, except in certain matters, I think, of procedure and precedent and expectation. That is really, really instructive <laughs> to me. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, and we're very fortunate we've managed to find one yes. to speak to us today because um, we feel like we need that kind of guidance. That's right. And, and the, the corollary of what you're saying is that the space has been filled and boy, has it been filled. Has it been filled. Um, by people who do not 
necessarily have that kind of expertise. Now, I, I should be clear, we're not saying the only voices that should be heard here are lawyers. No, that's I right. I don't think that's appropriate. And in, there are questions that are not legal questions to do with political culture, mm -hmm. um, trust between the electorate and the government. And by government, I don't necessarily mean the Morrison government. I mean all of the apparatus That's right. of government. Um, there are those questions that are not necessarily legal questions, but I do think there is a lot of legal expertise that probably should be brought to bear before we get to that point of, of discussing those things. Yeah. Where, one area I would say we have heard lawyers speak is on the question, which I think forms the central plank of what we want to talk about today, which is on the question of the convening of an independent inquiry, particularly into the allegation against Christian Porter, which is denied about as emphatically as you can, mm. but which nonetheless exists in the ether of our public discourse and surrounds the first law officer of the country. Um, and then the various rule of law arguments that have followed from that as the government has said that it doesn't want to go down this role, that it would be, sorry, this route, um, that it would set a bad precedent, that it would somehow compromise or violate the rule of law. Um, and you've had one or two lawyers broadly agreeing with that. And you've also had a lot of other lawyers who've been prepared to speak up and say, there's no rule of law issue here. Um, here's how something like this might work and so on. But outside of that, I think you're right. I do, I do think we've been looking at a public discourse where a whole lot of legal terms like rule of law have been thrown around and yeah. debated, but not necessarily with the kind of erudition you might hope for. And I, I've got, I'm working on a basic principle that the more emotive it is, perhaps the more restrained we need to be in the way that we opine about it. Yeah, look, I, um, Walid, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, that's not to say uh, sorry, there's no qualification, by the way. There's no but. I think you're absolutely right. And I think if there was ever a way, if there's ever a time, if there's ever an importance for people who are entrusted with the task of, say, cultivating public discourse or of shepherding maybe uh, um, uh, listeners in the public through very, very, very complex issues, I think that necessary prudence, the the, the real caution when it comes to either inciting or evoking or drawing upon emotion really, really needs to be extremely, extremely carefully done. And uh, just to sort of, I guess, fill out what we were talking about before, I mean, there's been the legal discourse, which I think has been limited and properly so. There's been the journalistic discourse, some of which has been exceptional. I think you're absolutely right to say that there really are political and moral considerations here that have been drawn on and discussed with with remarkable sophistication, expertise, and responsibility. And then, and, and then you've got, I think, some less responsible opinion writers who really should have been far more restrained than they have. And then you have the whole undergrowth of social media, which has been completely profligate with facts, conspiracies, names before names were being made public. Um, that's, that's all the stuff that I think is not just harming any proper public discussion of this matter. But it's also the kind of thing where it seems to me that we have a moral responsibility in a very real way not to know certain things. My One of my favorite poets, W.H. Auden, said that the problem for an information age, he used the term information age, but he used it back in 1937. <laughs> he said the problem with an information age, the moral problem, is going to be to teach people when not to know things, that there comes at certain point a moral obligation precisely not to know. And it does strike me that when matters of due process, natural justice, when matters of justice are in fact being evoked, there comes upon all of us a very real obligation at precise points. You have an obligation not to go scouring, not to go scrounging, not to know. Wait for things to come out in the proper time and allow certain aspects of this whole matter to 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 play its to, to run its its proper course. I I should say, though, Willie, all that being said, the emotion that these particular set of events and this most recent allegation against the attorney general, which, which again, he is denied in the most emphatic terms I think you can imagine, um, it has struck me the emotional force behind it. It's kind of like the pressure, the, the way that I've been thinking about it, the pressure has been building and building and building for weeks. You could say that it began with uh, Brittany Higgins' disclosures 
about being sexually assaulted in a minister's office, not by a minister, but in a minister's office in Parliament House, that allegation. You could say it's been building through the series of further allegations that were made by other women against the same alleged man. You could say it's been building through then the steady drumbeat of allegations made against a staffer in the office of the former Liberal MP, Craig Kelly. You could say that it's been building further through this extraordinary archive of thousands of testimonies of sexual assault that have been uh, um, accumulated by Chantel, uh, sorry, Chanel Condos. Uh, through a, an Instagram-based uh, question that she put out and has created something, I think, quite remarkable that shows the limits of so much of what we hide behind when we talk about consent education. And then there's the speech at the press club by Australian of the Year, Grace Tame. And then there's Ang General Angus Campbell's advice to young cadets. It's kind of like the pressure has been building and building and building and... The federal government's inadequacy in its response to Brittany Higgins' allegation when it was first made and then since it's become public, that kind of increased the pressure even further. And then this allegation of a 33-year-old sexual assault that's alleged to have taken place, I guess the way I think about it, it's kind of like a depth charge <laughs> and it sets off this vast political moral, civic set of responses. And it seems to me that, that uh, for, our, for a personal rec a reckoning with what we expect justice might look like, I think there first needs to be a recognition of the emotionally charged context in which we now find ourselves, where for many people... There is no capacity, and I'm not saying there's an incapacity, like there's something wrong with this, but there's no capacity, there's no willingness to detach themselves from the emotional content of this. That for very many people, the two figures at the heart of this allegation of sexual assault, the two people are in many ways representative figures. They they see these figures and they see themselves and and I think there's something about that, that representative quality, that really needs to very seriously be reckoned with in the way that we imagine what might justice then look like if this thing were to be dealt with properly. And I would say also the accused take on a representative quality as well. Um, for those that are sympathetic to the accused and those who are not, actually. Mm. Um, perhaps that's the difficulty with what we're looking at here is that it's so much bigger in the minds of so many than the individual case before us. Hmm. And perhaps that's why you get the kind of discussion that we are not going to engage in here about the details of the allegation and, and allegations, I suppose, when you bring in the other examples mm -hmm. you've mentioned, um, and who we, you know, what's believable and what isn't and trying to get to the truth. That's not our role. That's not what we're going to do. If that's what you want to hear, find a different radio station or podcast, um, for today, but that's not what we're going to do. But it's important to recognise that stuff is going on because it does speak to, I suppose, the meaning of these events um, for our society and for our body politic, um, which is to say part of this conversation is really about a profound, repeated and systemic failure mm. of, of the criminal justice system with respect to victims of sexual violence. Um, it's a failure that, and I'm really looking forward to seeing if our guest has thoughts on this, and she may not, but it's, it's a failure that is a really wicked problem for the law because we have a legal system, particularly in the criminal justice system, predicated on a very high standard of proof, beyond reasonable doubt, which is designed specifically to make sure that a thousand guilty people go free before an innocent person is convicted. Hmm. That's the idea. Yeah. And I think there are very, very good reasons to want to hold on to that. What we're now running into is the limitations of that with respect to a particular class of allegations and offences, whereby by their very nature, 
reasonable doubt, it's very difficult to establish. And here I'm not talking about the Christian Porter case because it's even more difficult in that sort of case. Right? It's very difficult to prove sexual crimes beyond reasonable doubt in a lot of cases because there are no external witnesses. Uh, and so what you end up with is two witnesses who give alternative accounts. Um, how is that not reasonable doubt in a lot of cases? Well, the answer seems to be it is. And that's assuming you've even gotten to the point of police cooperation, proper investigation and so on. So there is a genuine, perhaps even now it's becoming um, existential problem for the law and the confidence that the public and particularly a, a portion of the public that feels disproportionately let down by the law um, has. And I, I think that's really, really important to reckon with. But the other aspect of it, that I think does become particularly relevant in the Christian Porter case is, is there something that exists beyond the law? And this is where the inquiry, I think, comes into its yeah. own. Because the government's reason for not wanting to have this inquiry is, is there's no case against him. He, he's innocent until proven guilty. There is no admissible evidence that the police are prepared to go with to prove that he's guilty. Ergo, he's innocent. And once we start establishing processes, I think I heard one commentator call it a star chamber or something. Um, it's really a way of having a second bite at the cherry to try to convict someone without convicting them. Um, that sidesteps, I think, a really important question here, which is one of civic confidence. So what is the relation, what is the appropriate relationship between the government and between the people? And is there something that is not criminal in nature, not even legal in nature, in the technical sense of being justiciable in a court or something like that and imposing some kind of legal obligation or legal punishment or fine or whatever, but has a quasi-legal character in that it adopts the best legal traditions of fact-finding and establishment and uh, establishing of facts, evidence and so on, but is directed to a different question, a civic question about the propriety for office of the people who rule over us and in Christian Porter's case specifically, rule over the legal profession. That's right. And I will confess, although I do hear the arguments against the inquiry, I don't think they're all terrible arguments, by the way. I know some people do think they're all terrible arguments. I don't think they're all terrible arguments. I will confess I find the call for the inquiry irresistible. And in saying that, I have, I say absolutely nothing about the truth or otherwise of the allegation against Christian Porter. That, for me, does not factor into the question of whether mm. or not we need that inquiry. But then I come to something which maybe we'll talk about later in the show, which is if we agree an inquiry is needed, what do we actually think will be achieved? And I begin with the premise that what I would hope is achieved is some kind of healing in society where you have so many people so upset for legitimate reasons and a case that becomes a flashpoint for a lot of that anger, um, that potentially rocks the confidence of people in the government um, and the institutions of government. I mean there more than I mean the government that's in power. And that might then allow us, being the electorate, to move on, to say we accept the umpire's decision, whatever that umpire's decision is, and then we move on. That's what I would hope. My concern is that I think we might have reached a point now, if indeed it was ever possible, where that cannot happen, that, that an inquiry cannot achieve those ends. Because I think, would you disagree with me that this has rapidly escalated to the point of being a culture war? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, sorry, I don't disagree with you. Yes, I believe that it has. And unfortunately, because of the nature of the capital J justice that is being sought here, I would say on both sides, uh, um, but maybe sort of one side. It's, it's especially sharp on the on, side of those who claim the failure of the justice system that's right. with respect to sexual abuse. That's right. But, but precisely because of the capital J nature of the justice being sought, I think the time frame that an independent inquiry would necessitate in order for it to be done properly and the confidential nature of the independent inquiry for it to be done properly – yeah. I mean, neither of those things are going to be satisfactory to those who are seeking capital J justice. Can I just – can I mention one thing though? And I'm really, really eager for us to bring in our, our guest. But I think there's, there's, one, there's one thing here that's I think further 
that, that's, that's further important in addition to the arguments that you just made for why an independent inquiry is irresistible. Um, Immanuel Kant, who is a figure who's not ordinarily brought up in these sort of contexts, he was particularly sensitive to any act on the part of public figures, and by those public figures, he included, say, journalists, people who are responsible for, he actually tends to use the Latin term uh, for sort of propagation, you know, sort of propagating certain things. He says, the act of public figures in propagating certain material that leads the public to find those in representative positions and to hold them in contempt. Because he says, as soon as you have a kind of break of trust with a representative figure, the break of trust with that representative figure cannot help but have knock-on effects to other similarly representative figures. And once you then have the breakdown of that position of trust or faith in public figures, once, you, once the relationship between the public and those in representative positions becomes one of contempt, he says, then essentially the very fabric of our common life begins to unravel. And it just strikes me that so much, so many of the arguments that the prime minister in particular has been giving for why an independent inquiry would not be appropriate. There needs to be one standard of law for all Australians uh, and not two standards of law. I think what that actually misses is the representative nature, not just of a particular uh, parliamentary figure, but of a senior parliamentary figure and one moreover responsible uh, for legal prudence in this nation. I think that makes the need for there to be a reinstatement or a kind of cultivation of faith between the public and that person all the more all the more important, all the more morally necessary. I think the, other, yeah. the, the other thing though, Willie, that we're, we're maybe sort of stepping over just a little bit here, what a legal or what an independent inquiry does, even though it's going to be confidential, even though it will no doubt take time, the other thing that that does is it recognizes that while alleged sexual assaults are private in their nature, and therefore in some respect they're utterly unlike, say, an act of racial violence, which is public in its nature and it's communicative in its nature. It's meant to be something that is an act, if you like, of communicative terror in the sense that it communicates to others. Uh, this is what happens if you do what this person has done. As soon as an allegation of sexual assault, which is private by its nature, becomes public, that nonetheless, I'm trying to be very cautious in saying this, that has a terrorizing effect on those who then see themselves in the alleged victim's position or as mm -hmm. liable to, to suffering the same assault. Yeah, because they may well see it as deeply communicative. Precisely. And so then when you have that moment becoming public, when you have that voice, even if it's a mediated voice speaking, for that then voice not to be registered by our official means of communication, recognition, and justice, that then has a further terrorizing effect. Uh, um, mm. so, so, so in other words, there's instead of the, the contempt being conveyed by the public to the representative figures, it's almost like contempt from the representative institutions back to the public. To, or that section of the public. Or that, that section is, feels of that down. It precisely. Right. Which, is, which is why I run into the conundrum when I game this out in my head. There's an inquiry. Let's assume for the sake of the thought experiment, the inquiry finds in Christian Porter's favor. What then? Yeah. yeah. And I think if... Even though I think the inquiry has to happen, I worry about that. Because if you've gone into the inquiry looking for that sacrifice, looking for a head on a spike, then that will not satisfy you. And if you've gone into that inquiry thinking the problem is the legal system is gamed against women and victims of sexual assault, then any verdict that comes back in favour of an alleged perpetrator, however sound that verdict might be, legally on the merits of that particular case, I fear it becomes yet more evidence of that position. Right? Yes. I, th I think that's right, Waleed, but I think the worst of all worlds is for there simply to be legal silence. Yeah, which, I agree with that. Which is the, yeah. there is no New South Wales police investigation. The case is closed Natural South Australia, maybe that. Yeah. Maybe, I know something. Yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 for there simply to be silence, I think th that is a, an act of communicative and political and even moral failure on a very very high level.
Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that. I, I just don't think it will solve all of the problems we might be imagining it might. Our guests might disagree with that, though, and I would take her word over mine. Uh, and perhaps even yours, Scott. So let's speak to her. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN. You might be doing that right now, but the show exists as a podcast, so you can listen to it anytime you like. You can do that via the ABC Listen app. Uh, or you can follow The Minefield and subscribe to it on your podcast platform of choice. We are particularly grateful to our guests today, not just because we are both a little bit at sea, <laughs> we're floundering, uh, but also because, um, well, our guest is not only sort of expert at the highest levels, but this is not something that legal theorists and professors of public law tend to do. So we're all the more grateful to Rosalind Dixon for joining us. She's Professor of Law and Director of the Gilbert Tobin Centre of Public Law at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Rosalind, thank you so much for coming on The Minefield. Scott well, I thank you for having me. So, look, you've, I'm not going to put a question to you. You've heard us trying to get a sense of where we are about the, some of the legal, maybe some of the political, certainly some of the moral considerations at play here. You've also heard politicians speak over the course of the last week and a half about why an independent inquiry would be an uneven application of the law which is supposed to apply equally to all. Do you, do you think that an independent inquiry is both, say, legally, politically, morally necessary here? Or do you think that maybe some of the objections that have been raised to it really ought to be given more credence than they've been given? Well, it's been a very interesting uh, discussion that you've had, and I agree with a lot of what you've said, although I have some uh, disagreements. Let me talk a little bit about why I think, like both of you, an inquiry is justified and what I think it could realistically be expected to achieve. On the why question, I do think, as Waleed uh, beautifully put it, it's a question of civic confidence. And the Attorney General has a unique position in our constitutional system as the nation's chief law officer. And I think in those circumstances, you can talk about Immanuel Kant, you can talk about, you know, notions of uh, confidence in uh, democratic government, but we do need to feel that these issues have been appropriately investigated and ventilated in order to have confidence. And I think that's the real reason for pursuing this. As to uh, the specifics, I also think it is worth noting that the police's investigation did not have the same opportunity in the specifics of the Porter matter to conclude itself in the ordinary way. Because the complainant took her own life, uh, it is my understanding that the police didn't then fully have the opportunity to speak with her and certainly didn't even speak to the attorney. And so there are some unique circumstances about this which would make it extremely difficult for any criminal prosecution, but which also mean that the affairs uh, involved weren't ever fully ventilated or investigated in the way that there might be an expectation of in other circumstances of alleged criminality. So I think there's both a, a civic confidence point and there's something about the particularities of this case that make criminal prosecution uniquely unsuitable and unlikely and yet mean that there hasn't been a sufficient investigation for civic confidence to be restored. Now, Waleed says an investigation seems justified and appropriate, but he's worried that it can never achieve its aims. And I think that's a very valid point. But I'd, I'd say two things. I think an investigation is in some ways about a desire for substantive justice, and those desires may not be satisfied. But it's also about a desire for procedural justice and what people often call a right to be heard. You know, I was so struck when the George Pell uh, appeal in the High Court was heard and, and Cardinal Pell's conviction was overturned, hearing from the alleged victim in that case that he felt nonetheless that his case had been taken seriously and that he'd been heard. And there's very good social science evidence that people feel that when they've been heard properly, it's easier to heal and move on. And I think for the women and men of Australia who've experienced sexual violence, feeling that when you do make a complaint, it is taken seriously and pursued to the fullest extent possible, even if that can't, 
because of the challenges you note were laid about weighing up different competing accounts can't lead to conviction. It can still lead to healing and a sense of dignity and respect that's very, very powerful. And it sends a signal of seriousness about if you speak up, you will be heard. Um, so I'm much more optimistic than you relate that it can lead to uh, positive outcomes, even if the inquiry were to find that uh, on a balance of probabilities, Mr Porter is con- um, able to continue in office. So can I can I pick up there, Scott? Mm, it, please do. So I completely agree with you, Rosalind, about the importance of procedural justice and that sense of, in fact, in some ways, that's the argument that the people who are aligning themselves more with Christian Porter are making is that he's had no natural justice in this. Um, and so, which then raises the question, why wouldn't you want an inquiry if what you want is natural justice? You can be heard in this way. Um, I think that's absolutely right. And it was impressed upon me. You'll be pleased to know one of my first ever days in a law firm, one of the partners said to me, um, the thing about clients is if they lose, they can cope with that provided they feel like they've had a fair shot at it. Yeah, decent hearing. Yeah. Um, and you know, coming from a partner in a law firm who would deal with clients that are on the wrong end of things all the time, that, you know, I took that at face value. So I agree with that. The The problem I have here is I wonder whether or not that is true of this particular case, because if, I think what I'm saying is whether or not this will achieve its aims depends on the state when, uh, that we're in when we enter it, Right. It depends on what we are actually looking for when we want this. And if what we're looking for is a way of national healing and, uh, you know, a forum being made available, then yes, I think this works out well. My concern is if it's being entered into on the assumption, and I have heard this from some of my female colleagues that I've spoken to um, and friends, if the assumption is that the system always protects the people at the top of the system that that's the nature of the failure of the criminal justice system on sexual assault. Uh, Boys will always protect boys. And even if you have a female judge, I think in a systemic way, they're one of the boys. You know what I mean? Like they represent the system that is being described as, you know, the boys. Then, and then you add to that, uh, sorry, a process that's in in private, which I think it would have to be. Hmm. Yeah, I mean... High level, the nature of the investigations conducted should be disclosed, I think, and that a, a pretty clear summary of what was investigated and how would need to be disclosed for civic confidence. But mm. there would be a strong degree of confidentiality that would be also necessary to encourage people to come forward and protect the rights and interests of both those uh, supporting the complainant and the attorney. I agree with that. Yes. But I do think some disclosure of how and why a conclusion was reached at a high level would be necessary. But I think you're right, Willie, there's a cultural reckoning going on. And and if, if Mr Porter is found on balance of probabilities not to have committed this act in a way that disqualifies him, I do think there'll be people who are disappointed. And I think the, the cultural reckoning has to grapple with that but I, I think it's a it's a moment of opportunity to have a national conversation. I do think there's a furor. I do think it's damaging. But I think it's an opportunity as well to recalibrate a bit who we prioritise in these matters. And I think we need to preserve a deep concern for fairness and the accused, but also take seriously the voices of complainants in a systemic way. And I think it's a matter of, you know, shows like this make a contribution to that pushback against unrealistic expectations from those supporting change and say, look, we're going to achieve a great deal with an inquiry, but it won't be everything. And you need to adjust your expectations and see this as only one of many moments or possibilities for intervention for recalibration and systemic change. And I think that we need to keep our eye on that as well and say to the government, you know, you've always had something of a gender problem in terms of, you know, representation and and issues like childcare and the discussion around having a more economically gender uh, balanced budget, investing in childcare and other forms of, you know, preschool and and, uh, measures like that would be a huge step forward. So I would having a national conversation about uh, affirmative consent and education around consent and, and a curriculum that's a national as well as a state-based reform. So I think that we need to channel some of those aspirations for systemic change into the appropriate outlet. 
But yeah, I'm think... worried about the inquiry, though, being the outlet for this. So what, I guess the shorthand of what I'm worried about is that if the result comes back in a way that enough people don't like and viscerally don't like, then the end result is that the inquiry is delegitimised. Hmm. That's probably right. But I also think then it's the job of people like me not only to call for the inquiry in the first place, but to explain to people why they have to respect its outcome if it's legitimate and fair. And, you know, it was suggested to me recently, well, you know, Porter's reputation is irreparably damaged. I think that's a very damaging position to get to in a society, that someone's um, reputation can be damaged simply by the question being raised you know, on social media, first and foremost, and or in the mainstream press, people have to have an opportunity to have their reputation restored. And we have to be alive to the idea that there's always doubt on all sides, there's no certainty. And that if if people are investigated, and the, you know, allegations are not found on a balance of probabilities or beyond a reasonable doubt to be substantiated, they have to be entitled to get on with their life and profession and have their reputation restored. And I really think we have to resist the idea that it's over, you know, we can never trust him again. Well, you know, that will be true for some people. But part of our job is to say to people, no, an investigation is designed to provide a right to a hearing and procedural justice for complainants, but also to provide Mr Porter with an opportunity to answer allegations, do so under oath, to, you know, amass any evidence that would support his account and to restore his reputation if that's something that is capable of being shown under oath on a balance of probabilities to hold up. And, you know, he was very, very heartfelt at that press conference uh, I think a lot of people watching it felt for him and his pain, but some of the things that he said, which should be tested about his memory and his recollection and, you know, the suggestion, I think Julie Bishop was right to question why it is that when the statement seems to have been sent to the Prime Minister's office and been the basis of a conversation between the attorney and the Prime Minister, why it is that they didn't want to inquire as to the specifics. And I think we want to know those things. And I really believe that justice here is very difficult to achieve, but that it should include the possibility of restoring the attorney's capacity to do his job. Just one thing I should add, um, in respect of the allegation against Christian Porter in the full dossier, I have spoken to journalists who've said to me that he actually wants to read it. He's been trying to get hold of it and no one will give it to him for whatever reason I can't discern. I don't know, I I can't attest to that as being true uh, on my own steam, but I feel like um, given that that's been passed on to me by people whose job it is to know, I probably should say it um, yeah. in case that remains relevant. Um, you're listening to The Minefield. Well, Ali is my name, Scott Stevens, my co-host. Our guest today is Rosalind Dixon, who's Professor of Law and Director of the Gilbert and Tobin Centre of Public Law at the University of New South Wales. Scott, apologies. I've been a bit of a hog. No, um, this, is, this has been a, a legal training form. Your legal ed- education all crammed into about 15 minutes. I'm very, very grateful to you both. Um, look, just, just two, two quick things. I, I have a question for both of you. But just before going any further, we should point out that the ABC understands that the complainant did in fact tell New South Wales Police shortly before her death that she did not want the investigation to proceed. Um, uh, Rosalind, you, it, it's so wonderful to have your civic optimism on display here. And uh, anybody who listens to this show know that it's something that we hope for as well. I mean, acts of kind of public condemnation and irreparable exile, I think, are dealt out far too commonly. Uh, and so the, the the idea that really the end goal of this in many respects should be that people come to accept the outcomes of an independent investigation. Uh, I mean, that's that I think is what we should both hope for. And also those who are in a position to help cultivate such things ought to be cultivating them. The thing that struck me, though, over the last couple of weeks, and you two may disagree with this, and please do tell me if you do. It feels to me that the 14-month-long reckoning that goes by the name of the Me Too movement or the Me Too moment that engulfed the United States in particular in 2018, 2019. It feels to me that that has kind of been crammed into effectively three and a half weeks. Uh, there has been a an intense reckoning, not just with the government's disparity in gender representation 
or its policies, but also its, frankly, inept dealings with the allegations made by Brittany Higgins and other women. I think if the government's uh, approach to that, if its handling with that was more integral and more compassionate and was more credible, then maybe maybe when it comes to the allegation made against Christian Porter, which again, he denies, maybe there would be a bit more kind of leeway given. I'm not sure. But what strikes me is that now you have this very, very public moment uh, that is dominated by a very senior judicial figure and a woman who is spoken about in incredibly uh, um, uh, uh, forthright and glowing terms in terms of her lucidity and her graciousness and her compassion and intelligence. The thing that's that the immediate analogy, I guess, that comes to mind, and I don't know if you think this is a right analogy, are the hearings that took place into Brett Kavanaugh, who was then nominated for the to, for the U.S. Supreme Court, and the testimony that was then provided by Christine Blasey Ford. You would have to say that in terms of a public investigation, a fairly good public investigation was done. There was an FBI investigation. There were two days of public hearings in which both uh, the alleged victim and the alleged perpetrator were questioned. The result was, we all know what the result was. There was no public confidence, though, that found that the FBI investigation was credible or that the decision arrived at by the U.S. Senate, by the hearing committee, was in fact credible. This is, I guess, what leads me to suspect or to fear that because we've had a kind of Australian Me Too mo movement or moment packed into three and a half weeks, because this has been elevated to what Wally describes as a kind of culture war moment, there is no way of cutting diagonally across the partisan divide here and that whatever the result is, it's going to be a deeply polarizing result because neither side is going to have any confidence in either the motivations or the integrity of the process, whether it be a media-driven process or, a, or an independent inquiry process that's seen it through to the end. Are, Rosalind, do you really feel that we are entitled to the optimism that you expressed before? Well, I, I think optimism is a good human uh, trait and I always aspire to hold on to it, uh, whether or not uh, the, the facts are strongly in favour or not. Let me try and tell you a story, though, about the Kavanaugh analogy, which is basis for optimism. Justice Kavanaugh is seated on the US Supreme Court. The uh, process was not perfect, but it was certainly better than none. It was a significant improvement on the way in which uh, the allegations against Justice Thomas were handled right. in, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And, you know, the allegations were taken pretty seriously and it sparked a national conversation in the United States about alcohol, uh, teenage sexual assault, about the capacity for redemption, memory, belief, and a whole set of positive things. And, and so it shows to me that, you know, it is possible for someone to go on and serve in high public office even when doubts remain in the minds of many when there's been a proper process. So I think it should give Mr Porter confidence that should he subject himself to this kind of inquiry uh, on the Prime Minister's recommendation and decision that there would be the possibility for continued high service. And the second thing is I think a particular context of the US is important to explain to listeners one of the reasons there was very high distrust in the result in the United States is that President Trump was seen to be rushing the appointment through mm. uh, and to be putting pressure on the Senate to conclude its uh, process in, in a way that was too rushed. And I think that the partisan conflict here is much less intense generally and certainly in re relation to these kinds of issues. Uh, I don't think we'll lead it's a culture war, actually. I think it's a war that is about a certain kind of norm around um, fairness, male reputation and, you know, 
sort of patriarchal power versus a, a feminist movement seeking a recalibration. But I don't think it's actually a left-right difference, pure and simple. I think there have been voices on the conservative side of politics who've been brave and stood up for the value you know, of an independent inquiry for the complainant. There are people supporting uh, the complainant story who come from both sides of politics. So I think it, there's definitely a kind of Me Too um, reckoning going on here. I like the idea that it's, you know, we're doing it in three weeks and the US did it in 14 months, but I do think you're right to say it's a coalescence of voices and calls for change. But the Kavanaugh is, experience is both concerning, but it also shows that even a pretty imperfect process can allow at least some people to move on. And it is peculiarly inflected by partisan contestation in the US that we have the good fortune to have a more moderate and less hyper-partisan environment on these issues. And so I don't think it should be cause for, for pessimism, even though it is a salutary uh, lesson. Can I just um, side take one step to the side and ask maybe the biggest question of all here, Rosalind, in the time that we have? And I just want your legal expertise here. Can you see, envisage um, what a solution to this wicked problem for the law might look like when it comes to the evidentiary burden precluding in a sort of structural way justice for victims of sexual assault? Well, I think it's a really important question and I I think it's great you're asking it because I think, as you said at the beginning of the show, the, the real thing we should be doing here is looking for how to make things better in the future, which is, you know, no one's going to be perfectly happy with what happens on the specifics, but we can use it as a moment to make things better for our, you know, our friends, our, ourselves, our daughters, our cousins, our, our colleagues in the future. So I do think that the criminal law can be improved and I think that that's procedural. I think it's how we treat victims when they come forward, that they have the right support when they go to the police station and the hospital, people who are trained and, you know, dedicated teams to deal with sexual assault complainants, that when they go through the criminal justice process, prosecutors are trained to handle matters appropriately and that the law doesn't unfairly prejudice uh, jury outcomes against uh, complainants. And there are a range of really important reforms that have been achieved in the last decade that have helped that. I still think the law of so-called affirmative consent that requires an affirmative yes, not just the absence of a no or um, a reasonable belief of yes in order to get, um, you know, acquittal, it would be a, a positive step. But the ultimate analysis is that there will be cases where, you know, reasonable doubt exists and someone will be acquitted in a way that's really tough for a complainant. But that's the nature of our system. But one of the first academic pieces I wrote a long time ago was about rape as a war crime. And the point I made there was that justice is multiple. It's not just criminal justice, it's justice for complainants or victims, which can involve civil proceedings, which could involve compensation, restitution, counselling, but acknowledgement and the right to be heard. And we've heard in the child sex abuse context how important the Royal Commission and that process of listening and healing has been. And I think civil proceedings are an important adjunct and addition to the criminal justice system for complainants. You know, often complainants aren't looking for uh, punitive consequences. They're looking for protection and recognition, although sometimes both. And I think that's really important to stress. And it's why it's disappointing that the, the discourse about the rule of law doesn't recognise the idea that law has a protective function as well as a punitive function. And what's being sought here is about civic confidence and protection, not about punishment per se. So I do think that part of the solution is criminal justice reform accepting that sometimes that will lead to type one and type two errors, you know, wrongful conviction, but most often acquittal where a complainant has a genuine uh, basis for complaint and that we can complement the criminal law by appropriate civil mechanisms in the defence forces at work and in this case in parliament to handle, uh, you know, allegations that are serious but can't meet the criminal standard. I think it's understandable that 
men and women, but especially men fear the idea that out of nowhere could come a complaint uh, not taken through the police uh, that would have serious consequences for their career. I relate to that. I think it's valid. And I think the threshold should be a, a serious and credible allegation. But it would be much better for everyone if there was a complaints body that could hear that confidentially rather than a kind of Twitter trial that is not fair to anyone. So I'm very optimistic that a mix of civil and criminal uh, mechanisms can advance us substantially from where we are and where we have been, although it will never be perfect because, as you said, Waleed, there's a kind of irreconcilability to people's experiences and priorities, but I think we could do much better. And part of the way we do it is we have a mix of criminal and civil mechanisms and that civil mechanisms that fit the context. And here that means confidential uh, integrity and complaints type you know, mechanisms in a parliamentary context. Or civil action. As you were talking, I was reminded of a couple of things. One is um, the development of female-staffed police stations in Argentina, which I understand has been, I'm far from an expert on this, but I've spoken to an academic who who is, um, he said it's actually had a remarkable impact on gender violence in Argentina. So it's not about changing the courts. It's about no, changing it's about, the process on the way. So, and I think hospitals, police stations, yeah how we educate people from the beginning around sex and consent and then supporting victims. And as I said, just think back to that Pell uh, complainant. You know, if you cannot get a conviction but you feel that as your partner in your law firm said on day one, you had a fair shake at it and a fair hearing, I still think that he has hearing sort of healing value as well as trauma. Mm. And we have to accept that, you know, that's the nature of a, a fair process is that you can't always have your account vindicated, but you just ask to be treated with dignity and respect and to have a fair shot at it. And then the other one I thought of, Scott, you might like this or not, is the OJ Simpson case. So um, he's acquitted. Um, but he is successfully sued at the, at the civil standard for the um, for the crime that couldn't be proven mm. um, of killing his wife. Um, I don't know. Is there, how many people have been sued for sexual assault? Not very many. So there's a really interesting statute in uh, the United States called the Violence Against Women Act, which has been a really polarising but important act that does allow for it. And... Um, you know, some listeners may be aware that there was a moment in, um, you know, the last 10, 20 years in the US where the alien tort statute was used in New York to sue for international crimes of this kind. Catherine McKinnon, the well-known feminist uh, legal theorist and activist, was involved in that. So there have been instances. It's not common in Australia. Uh, and obviously in this instance, um, in relation to, to the attorney, the complainant, you know, is not situated to bring suit and, and there's no suggestion that the family would want to do so. I do think that sometimes that's a kind of backdoor way that's not appropriate. I do think that civil proceedings can be very useful and important in a whole range of regulatory and reform contexts and to do justice to individuals. But mostly here people are looking for protection. You know, women who experience harassment and assault want to be heard and recognised and they really want to make sure it doesn't happen to other women. And so part of, you know, what Brittany Higgins seems to have wanted from coming forward is to say, enough, we have to do better at protecting young women in Parliament House and make systemic change. And that's the hope, Scott, that the three and a half weeks of furor will lead to positive steps. And the government, to its credit, has taken some really positive mm, steps to commission some change and think about how to improve, and I think we should commend them for it. But that, to enjoy confidence, it has to be a holistic response that does whatever is possible while maintaining fairness fairness to all, including those accused. Wow. We need a sequel, don't we, Scott? Yes, so many elements in this. Um, Rosalind, um, I think we did very, very well being able to get access to you. Yes, um, we did. <laughs> it's very, very hard to think of uh, anyone who would have been better. So thank you very much for being prepared to stick your head up and talk to us um, and lend us your expertise tonight. We really appreciate it. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Don't know why I said tonight. It's not tonight at all. Rosalind Dixon what? is do you, professor. Do you have of... another job, Willie? Is there something yeah, else? Yeah, maybe I do. It's, just, it's a tick. Rosalind Dixon is professor of law and director of the Gilbert and Tobin Centre of Public Law at the University of New South Wales. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield, um, I hope we did justice to it. Um, if not, we did our best. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next week. 
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.